morning. All right, well, what an honor to be up here, I got to tell you. Um, yeah, Dan didn't tell you that this is my first time preaching, right? So you can imagine the nerves this week, but I, I got to tell you, it's quite an honor to be up here. What a, what a church. And, and if you know me and if you sat in any of my teachings, you'll know that the first thing I always have to tell my audience is that I love you guys. And I love you deeply. And um, if you're new here, and it's kind of strange that some stranger says I love you, well, I, you know what the Bible says to greet one another with a holy kiss. So if you'd rather try that, <laughs> meet up with me after, and we can, we can work that out. So there's a reason why I chose this passage here. And um, it's very personal to me. And that's what Dan said. If it's your first time, find something that's very, very personal to you. And, and this is very, very personal to me. Now, I don't want to, I'm not going to be up here to give you guys a testimony of my life. But I do want, want you to know that this is a very personal passage to me. And so um, it came to me. I'll give you a quick story about it. It came to me one time uh, in my early 20s. And, I, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, that uh, we've had our struggles as Christians. We sin, we fall. And sometimes that sin can be overwhelming to you that you actually question, you know, did God really, did, did I lose my salvation? You know, can I sin my way out of salvation? And, and it just haunts the soul. You know, this isn't just some abstract uh, doctrinal difference, but it can haunt your soul. And I know many people who have gone through this. And so one night in my, uh, the loneliness of my apartment, I, I did what you should never do. You should, don't ever, I call it Bible roulette, Okay. And this is what it is. This is what, Lord, I'm, I'm, I need to hear a word from you. And then you just, you just open it and you, and you go like this. And, and, and I'll tell you what, don't ever do that. Most of the time it's like, don't eat shellfish. What does that got to do with anything, Lord? Are you serious? But for some reason, in, in spite of my sin and trying to test God or, or bargain with him, he, he brought me to this passage that has really forever changed my life. And I, I, I prayed this morning, I prayed all week for, for you as God's people, that this might change your life as well, and that you can just find security in Christ. And um, it's just a wonderful passage. And if you ever deal with the issue of, of losing your salvation, that you can actually sin your way out of salvation, I think this passage clearly demonstrates that you, you cannot. And so um, before I get, begin, you can go to the, word, or to the Lord in prayer and ask for uh, help. Definitely need it. Father, you are so good to us. You have secured us in the mighty grip of your hand, God. And I just pray that your people would know that. They would be assured today that we may fall. We can fall greatly, God, but you always restore us for your glory and, and because you love us, Lord. And I just pray that you would help me now to speak the truth of your word. Help me not to speak any falsehoods, Lord, but to, um, to speak the truth and just help me get through this, Lord, and, and, and speak to your people. pray that you open up our hearts today to your word and help us to understand it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it starts at John uh, 10.22, and it says, At the time of the Feast of Dedication, and it took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple of the colony of Solomon. Now, I, I love what John does in his gospel because sporadically throughout the gospel, he gives us kind of the context of what's going on, um, and it gives us kind of a bigger picture of What's going on there? Like, for example, John 2, he talks about how it's the Passover time, and it just gives us a greater context of what's going on in that, in that scene. John chapter 5 is the Sabbath, and, and sure enough, Jesus says, my father is working until now, and even I am working. And you can kind of see that it makes sense that John told us it was the Sabbath and then the working. Um, all the way to John 19, where he, he tells us it's a day of preparation for Passover. And, um, 
And sure enough, Jesus is on the judgment seat uh, from Pilate, and he's being prepared as our Passover lamb. So it gives us the context. And so here he gives us the context as well. It's, uh, it's the Feast of Dedication. And, and so where would you find that in the Old Testament? You know, well, you don't. And so what is it? And so quick, quick history. Um, there's about a 400-year period between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and then, and then the first book of the New Testament, which is Matthew. And in that 400-year period, there was a lot of history that occurred there. And um, what occurred was that there was an evil tyrant Syrian king named Antiochus. And he came and, and he, he took over Jerusalem. And he began a very heavy persecution of the Jews. He was doing uh, horrible things. And he actually gave himself the name Epiphanes. And that name actually meant God manifest. He made himself out to be a god. He claimed deity for himself. And he did horrible things in the temple. He defiled the temple. And when he did so, he, he, he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies. And then he erected a statue of Zeus. So you can imagine for the Jewish uh, people, this was just the, the worst possible scenario. It's the most defilement of the temple you can imagine. But up came a, a priest named Matthias. I think I said it right. And uh, he, he gathered a rebellion together, and they fought against Antiochus, but soon he died. But his son, Judas Maccabeus, maybe some of you maybe heard that word, Maccabeus, um, took over and defeated Antiochus and drove him out of Jerusalem. And so what he did was, was immediately begin a rededication of the temple. And so there's, there's another word for this uh, festival, and it's also called the Festival of Lights. But uh, many of us may know it as Hanukkah. Okay, so here they are celebrating Hanukkah. They're remembering this event in human history, and it really sets up for us the context of what's going on here. And so the Jews, they gather around him, and they said to him, how long will you keep us in, spent, in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, I, I was trying to work out this scene this week and, and, and just kind of visualizing what it looked like, and I, I kind of pictured Jesus' face in response to this, and I can only imagine that maybe only husbands really know this, this face. It's like you, your wife tells you every single day for a week that you have a baby shower coming up on Saturday, right? But then you wake up Saturday, oh, hey, honey, what are we doing today? Right? Are you serious? That's the look. I, I get that look twice a week, easily. And this, this is the look I just imagine Jesus having, like, are you serious? Are you seriously asking me this? You know? And, and just think about the, the context, like I said, the historical context here. You know, Ju Judas Maccabeus was sort of this Messiah-like figure, right? So they immediately go and surround him and question him. They could have asked him any question. But in their minds, it's fresh of this, this Messiah political figure who would free them from, from tyranny. And so they ask, are you the Christ? Because here we are 200 years later, and we're under oppression again, under Roman rule. And we're tired of it. We're looking for the Messiah. And so Jesus tells them, I, I told you, and you do not believe. And, and isn't, it, isn't it kind of funny, though? He never really says it plainly. He never says, I am the Messiah. And you wonder why, you know? Why doesn't he really say that? And because their expectations of a Messiah was this political figure who would come and, and defeat their enemy. But they didn't expect that the Messiah would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who would come and actually defeat a, an even greater enemy. That is death and sin. And so the, the question that they asked, was it really sincere? We can come to this question. Are they really sincere about asking? Do they really want to know if he's the Messiah? And are, are they really saying, we're willing to bow before you if you would just be clear about it, right? Just tell us plainly. No, no, no. This is an accusation. 
saying the reason why we don't believe is because you're not clear about it, Jesus. And you're not, being, you're not being straightforward about it. And here's Jesus' reaction. He's all, look, I told you, you don't believe. But look at the works that I've done in my Father's name. You know, look, look what I've done. And, and, and he appeals to the evidence, right? And just imagine if there's any other, other uh, point in history where anybody should have came to faith in Christ. It should have been here because Jesus is walking among them and he's performing these miracles. He's, he's healing the sick and giving sight to the blind. He's rising people from the dead. He's doing all these things. If there was any reason by the evidence that you should come to faith in Christ, it should have been this time period of history. And um, even if they never saw it directly, I mean, there were so many witnesses there that they should have, that it would have been irrational to deny it. But yet Jesus says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, and here's the, here's, here gives them a reason why. Okay? You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, if you pay close attention to these words here, they look at the order. It does not say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. It says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You see, the precondition in order to actually come to faith and actually believe is that you must already be a sheep. You know, we, we think to ourselves it should be opposite, that we should actually believe and then we become a sheep. But this is not what Jesus says, and it's, it's clear. He puts it in this word order here. And, and Paul kind of expands on this a little bit in, in Romans 1. And he, he kind of gives us an idea of, of the thinking here going on. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And, and it's underlined here on purpose. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Look at the evidence. And what does he say? You're without excuse. You're without excuse. And Jesus uses this same line of reasoning. He says, look, look at the evidence. Look at everything I've done. But the reason why you don't believe is not, it's not cognitive. It's not because you don't have enough evidence. It's because deep in your heart, you are unrighteous. And you're suppressing that truth in your unrighteousness. And so you ever ask yourself this, um, why do I believe? Why, are, if you are in Christ today, why, why do you believe the gospel? Why do you believe in, and maybe your neighbor doesn't believe? You know, or, or why do you believe, and maybe even on a more personal level, your brother or sister? You know, why do you believe the gospel and they don't? I mean, you're raised in a similar home, maybe, with the same values, similar experiences. Why is it that you believe, but then, but then they don't? Is it because you're smarter, maybe? You know, you looked at all the evidence and you thought, you know what? This makes sense. This is the most rational position out of all the positions. I would agree with you, definitely. If, you know, if you've taken the apologetics course, you know I would agree with you. Is it because you're more wise? Is that what it is? Maybe you're, you're wiser than your neighbor because you thought to myself, you know what? Uh, what do I have to lose? I better follow Christ because if, if I'm wrong, I sure don't want to go to hell, right? Maybe it was the wise decision. Or maybe it was just you're more moral than your neighbor, huh? You're, you're you thought, you know, it's the right thing to do to follow Christ, right? Are these the reasons why you believe? And Jesus emphatically, excuse me, rookie mistake, emphatically says no, he doesn't. The reason why you don't believe is because you are not a sheep. And see, Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, he says, here's the reason. You know, apart from Christ, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. Absolutely dead. And he tells the, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, 
that the unnatural man cannot even understand spiritual things. They can't even understand it. There's no cognitive ability to even understand the gospel. It's impossible. And, and even John chapter 6, Jesus tells us that you cannot even come to the Father unless I draw you in. There's an absolute inability to be, be even able to understand the gospel at all. Why? Because you're dead. What do dead people do? Can dead people make decisions? No. Dead people do nothing. So you ask yourself, why do you believe the gospel today? It's literally a miracle that you believe the gospel today. Jesus took your heart of stone and he made it a heart of flesh. Who else could do that? That is a miracle, an absolute resurrection from the dead. And that's what God did to you if you're in Christ today. He saved you by his sovereign merciful grace. And there is no other reason why. So he goes on, he carries on. Um, oops, must have changed, sorry. Um, did I mess up? Sorry, rookie mistake. I'm getting there. Uh-oh. Well, if you have your Bibles open. <laughs> it's not changing. Let me see if I can get back here. Okay, there we go. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. And so you ask yourself three questions. How, how do you know you're even a sheep to begin with, right? Ask these three questions. Do you hear his voice? Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that do you hear some audible voice in your ear like, oh, Jesus is speaking to me right here. It's not some kind of mystical voice that's going on in your soul. Do you, hear, do you open up the word? Do you open up the Bible? Do you understand what Christ is telling you? Are you, are you convicted by it? Do you, do you uh, rejoice when you see the testimonies of Christ in Scripture? Um, he says, I know them. Well, do you know Christ? Does he know you? Do you have an actual personal relationship with him? Are you building your trust in him and your faith in him? And uh, it says that they follow me. Are you, are you uh, eager to follow Christ and be obedient to him? Three, three characteristics of the, of the sheep. And then immediately he, he gives us these, he gives us the answer to the question that we began with. And this is the real controversy. And many, even within the, the household of faith, would even, even argue this question. Can, can a true Christian, can a sheep lose their salvation? And, and if I were to answer this really simple, in this simple question, John MacArthur, I like how he puts it. He says if a Christian could lose his salvation, he would. Right? I mean, you would. There wouldn't, be, there wouldn't be a soul in heaven, you know, if we had the actual ability to lose our salvation. And so, but Jesus answers this too as well. He immediately answers it with, I give my sheep eternal life. Eternal life. Now, what does the word eternal mean? It means it's forever. And if you could lose your salvation, then, it's, then there wouldn't be eternal life. It would be temporal life. Or maybe if it was conditioned based on how, how good you are, or maybe if you don't sin ever, it would be conditional life. It's conditioned. Your, your life is conditioned based on how you work, right? That's not what he says. He gives my sheep eternal life. And... This next part kind of reminds me of my, my son, Jonathan. He's seven. If you ever met him, he's a rambunctious little kid. Uh, a couple months ago, I remember just, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take him to Scandia, right? I'm just going to, let's just go. I said, Jonathan, let, let's go to Scandia. What? Are you serious, Daddy? Yeah, yeah, let's go. You mean today? Yeah, today, let's go to Scandia. You mean the, the place with the, the, the batting cages and the video games and the, Yes, and you got to spell it out. I had to spell it out for him. It's too good to be true. I'm telling you, you know, yes, Jonathan, today we are going to Scandia to play the games and do the, 
okay, all right, you know, it, t- it took a lot of ex- explaining to do. And, you know, we're kind of like that sometimes, aren't we? You know, because Jesus could have ended it here. I give him eternal life, end of the story. Christian can't lose their salvation. But, yeah, he spells it out for us like we're, we're seven-year-old skeptics. Like, like it's too good to be true, you know. And so he, he spells it out for us on a deeper level. Hey, I give you eternal life, and they will never perish. Well, yeah, because that's what eternal life means. You will never perish. But our, our skeptical hearts, right, they just, they just don't want to believe it. So he continues to go on, and he says this. And this is, this is so deeply personal to me. This is, this is it right here. He says that no one will snatch them out of my hand. And I, I remember that night when I opened my Bible, I, uh, I was brought immediately to this right here. And it's just two simple words. No one, no one can snatch them out of my hand. I kept wondering, how, how could it be possible that I could live in such a sinful way and yet, yet be a Christian like this? How is it possible to be this way? You know, how could I be a man after God's own heart and be, can, be, be living this way? You know, and maybe some of you caught that. How can I be a man after God's own heart? Does that, does that sound familiar to some of you, maybe? You know, and, and the Apostle Paul, um, in Acts chapter 13, he, he goes on to describe David, King David, in this way. He says, David was a man after God's own heart who, would do all, who the Lord says does all of my will. You know, and surely Paul knew uh, David's life. And as we all know, when we think of David, what is it we think about? Man, that adultery murderer, Right? I mean, just the, the wickedness that, that, that David did. And yet, yet, when we read Psalm 51, this is David's repentant psalm. This is where he's lamenting over what he did with Bathsheba and his adultery and, and the murder. And you can see just a broken man over his sin. And you can see him repenting. And um, as he goes through, he continues to, to appeal to God's mercy and grace. And he says, God, just heal me from this sin, and, and I know you'll forgive me. But never once did he ever doubt God's salvation. He never once, in the midst of the, the most horrible sin that he could possibly commit, doubt God's salvation. And in fact, he gets to, to uh, verse 12, and he says this, Restore me to the joy of your salvation. And that's just, that's just amazing. He doesn't say, restore me to your salvation. It was never gone. He still had it, but he said, restore me to the joy of your salvation. And, and that's exactly what, what, what God does for us when we sin. He restores us to the joy of being obedient to him, of, of realizing how, how wicked our sin is. And he restores us to the joy of following him once again. And so if we're really, really skeptical, he keeps on going on. And he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And then he switched that. There you go. My father who has given, to them me, given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand as well. He gives us a double coverage here. He says, first, you have the son right here. This is the hand. And then you have, now you have double protection. Now you have the father, and he is greater than all. And there is no greater power in the entire universe than the father. And there is nobody who can snatch us out of the father and the son's hand. This is like a sure safeguard right here. And... But there's something just such a treasure that Christ says here. And he says, the Father who has given them to me. The Father has given Did you know, church, that, that we as believers in Christ, that, that we are a gift from the Father to the Son? That we're a gift to the Father and Son. Ever from eternity's past, 
We are a gift to the Son. And, and this isn't the first time he talked about this. He talked about this in John chapter 6. He says this in 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And he gives us even greater assurance here. He says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. And, you know, from a, from a human perspective, we, we tend to look at salvation as, as you know, why, why did God save me? And, and, and we say, you know, because he loves us. And, that, and that's so true, isn't it? I mean, there's, there, I'm, I'm not saying that that's not true. That is very true. But, but we're missing kind of a more grand and divine picture here. Jesus gives us this picture right here when he says that the Father has given them to me. And this is a divine picture of, of that the reason why we're saved is because God loves his son. He loves Jesus first. That is the ultimate reason why God saves us and keeps us. He saves us and keeps us because he surely loves us. But the greater and bigger and more divine picture is that it's because he loves his son. What an added security to that, right? To our, to our salvation. Because it, as, as humans, we definitely doubt our relationships at times. And, and you know, does my wife love me? Do my parents love me? And even our relationship with God, we can very much question at times in our struggles, does God really love me? Does God really love me? And, and that's not his fault. That's our fault, right? We're, he loves us. It's, it's our own sinful doubts. But there's no way to doubt that the Father loves the Son. He, lo- he has loved him from eternity. He has loved him perfectly. And, and who of us who have, have received gifts in, of great value, of treasure, and we keep them in our homes and we lock them up, you know, we, get, we, we lock the doors when we leave, make sure nobody steals it. You know, we might even get a fireproof safe and just be like, all right, it's safe, right? And, and us, weak, sinful people, we try to guard our treasures. And, but who are we? I mean, the Father, he guards his treasure. The treasure is us, the people that he has given to the Son, and, and he, if we're so weak that we can actually do that, imagine God, God's safety for us, for his son, that he would have a people eternally to forever worship him and adore him. And so finally, Jesus drops the, the bomb here. Um, oops, wrong one. Here, here we go again. Um, okay, am I good? He drops the hammer on, on, the, on the Jewish Jewish people here. He says, I and the Father are one. Now, if there was ever a, a passage of Scripture that's probably been debated more in the history of the church, it, it could be one, this one here. What did he mean by I and the Father are one? You know, did, um, we can go all the way back to the 4th century, a man named Arius, who denied that Christ was actually divine and, and he was just a human. He, he actually said that what, the, what Jesus meant here is that I and the Father are one in just purpose, you know, or that, that, that's our goal. But, um, and we can even still see this today, Jehovah's Witnesses, they would, they would say the same thing to us, that it doesn't mean that he's God. But it doesn't make sense in context here, because the very next um, verse, they actually say that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Now, why would they do such a thing, right, if he was just one in purpose? There's nothing wrong with that. But see what, he already made a claim to deity. He said, I give my sheep eternal life. Who else can do that but God himself? And so here he's saying, I and the Father are one. And the Jews understood what this meant. It meant that he is God. And, and, I, and the context of this entire scene really makes this come out. Because 200 years ago, there was somebody else who came into this temple. And he said, I am God. Antiochus. 
And he probably promised his people many things as well, right? And he said, I am God. But here Jesus comes in here. If he ever wanted to make a point, this was the way to do it. And just imagine the courage here. This is fresh in their minds 200 years later that this person claiming to be God comes into the temple. But here's Jesus. I am God. I'm in the temple, right? And what a courageous way to do. Now, some of you really skeptical in here maybe. You wonder, well, what's the difference between Jesus and Antiochus, right? Hey, they both probably made promises. They're both claiming this divinity, this deity. And, and, and we go right before this, um, this passage here. John records for us this. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Here's the difference. Antiochus is dead. 2,000 years later, Jesus is alive. He is risen. And this isn't just a slogan for Easter. This is for every single day living. This is what we need to tell ourselves. Our Jesus, he is alive. And the reason why we can trust that he keeps us and he saves us is because he is still alive. He is still alive and he is present. Amen? Amen. Thank I, just, I need to hear an amen after that, all right? So here's the deal. You know, if, you, if, you, if your salvation was based on anything in you, it could e- you could easily undo it, but it's not. It's not. It's based on God's gracious and sovereign mercy upon your life. He changed you from death to life. And, and Jesus and the Son and the Father both hold on to you. And no one could ever snatch you out of their hands. He makes it very clear here. And sometimes we may have doubts about this. Sometimes we fall. We can even fall and sin. We can fall greatly, but ultimately, God promises to restore us. He restores us. If you're a sheep, he's going to restore you. If you're struggling in your sins, he will restore you. This is a promise made. All right? And just, I, I just pray that this passage will reach to you as it reached to me, that you can have assurance that, that, that we are in Christ, and we are in Christ eternally, and, and you can count on that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you're so gracious to us. Um, who else can we compare you to, God, but you are just so good and, and loving and merciful, and I ask that you just please, out of this imperfect message, touch the souls of your people, that they might be confident in, um, in you and that they might trust you for all of eternity, God. Uh, we love you and we thank you for this message today, and I pray that um, you'll continue to bless us as we go about our day. In Christ's name, amen.